I think most of us are just trying to figure out how to do this stuff right. And we just, we just need help. <laughs> but I think the very first step we have to take, we have to understand our process, the people involved and their backgrounds and how they come at things. And we have to get some tools and technology that are across the board, no matter which place you come from in your life, whether you're philosophy who learned Python or whether you're computer science all the way, or whether you came up through the data space and you were SQL and SAS and SVSS or whatever you were, we need to come up with those repositories, the lineage. We need to come up with processes and tools that we can all agree on and all keep in one place so we can at least start the process of governance. The first Data Futurology event for next year is going to be Ops World, data-centric operations for business value. We're going to be hosting the community in person at the Sofitel Wentworth in Sydney on March 14th and 15th. We're going to be discussing operationalizing securely for business value, impact and scale. What are we operationalizing? Everything across the data analytics and AI space. We're bringing all the ops perspectives together into this one event. So it's going to be data ops, operationalizing data pipelines, analytics ops, operationalizing our analytics, MLOps and AI ops about operationalizing machine learning and artificial intelligence in our businesses. We're going to be discussing processes, frameworks, the observability and the future of this space. Check out the website for more and hope to see you there. I'd like to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Talent Insights. Talent Insights are Australia's leading specialist data recruitment business. With offices in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, they're experts at providing recruitment strategy and building data teams for clients across industries Australia-wide. They provide recruitment solutions for all roles across the data lifecycle, including data engineering, data science, advanced analytics, customer and marketing insights, business intelligence, data product managers and data governance. They're skilled at finding the best permanent and contract hires for your business needs, as well as statement of work, project focus, data resources. At Talent Insights, relationships matter most. I can say from first-hand experience, Talent Insights are fantastic to work with. Whether you're a business leader within an HR network or a specialist data candidate, Talent Insights should be the first company you turn to for all your data recruitment needs. Find them at talentinsights.com.au. Hi everyone, welcome to Data Futurology. This is Felipe Flores and today we have an extra special episode focusing on AI governance, on AI truth, and on how you can grab control of your data that's out there, of the AIs that you interact with, and how we can design our AI in a way that it makes the world a better place. It's something that's been increasingly important for the audience. You guys have been asking us to cover this topic and we have the perfect person to come and discuss with us today about this. Courtney Abercrombie, she's the CEO of AI Truth. Please check out the website. Courtney, great to have you again. How are you going today? Great. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to be back because uh, I think you've just grown and grown since the last time uh, I was on. So that's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And you have been so busy yourself. I'm very keen to um, cover what you've been up to since last time we caught up and then jump into your new book, which is very, very exciting. So how how's the last couple of years been for you with all the, the madness? It has been an insane 
Right. I mean, sometimes we're up and then sometimes we're like, oh no, you know, like, you know, with recession forces out there, you know, potentially going to happen and people starting in the tech world to kind of get laid off now, I'm worried for people and their Um, You know, as you read through the book, you'll see I touch on every major aspect of life and talk about how AI affects that and hiring is no exception like right now, um, you know, it, it was great because before because, you know, everybody's got like a thousand jobs and one person, you know, and you're like just naming your salary, which is awesome. But now it's like, okay, now it's starting to tighten up a little bit. And, you know, firms are going to start using more and more AI and hiring to kind of weed out people for that one position. So the dynamics are switching. So, you know, I kind of took a look at that. I've been working with um, the uh, U.S.'s version of, uh, well, we call it the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission um, and trying to just kind of educate some of our federal folks that can help affect and make sure that there's no bias in the hiring. And that's been a lot of fun. Um, I've also been dabbling into the healthcare areas and understanding more and more deeply about how doctors are using clinical decisioning support, which, you know, as you know, Felipe, because you are a CDAO in this space, this is a hot area and there's not a lot of norms established for how doctors use this or how they even disclose it, quite frankly, mm-hmm. or how they don't disclose it, which is why I talk about it as a what you don't know in the book, what you don't know. (laughs) But um, it's true. And most of them are like, hey, this is a tool. You know, why should I tell my patients about this and open up this conversation that I don't need to have as a doctor when this is just really a tool for me? Um, And so there's that mentality. But in the back of my mind and of your mind, probably, and anybody else who knows data, you know that there's this error, you know, rate that is out there that doesn't apply to everybody. Um, We know from our background that statistics and analytics is really about the majority of people, not really the minority of people. And so if you are one of those that has special conditions of any kind to your health or anything else out there, you're more of an outlier. And let's just face it, we don't really know how to systemically deal with the outlying situations. And that's where we get into a lot of trouble. So I've been looking at that from a healthcare perspective and how we can affect that and um, and uh, coming up with some solutions and coming up with a lot of just, you know, headbanging solutions too. So yes, <laughs> the yes. most important thing is just to educate people and let them ask questions, like make sure that they know when they go into these healthcare situations, hey, your doctor's using this stuff. Here's where they're using it. You might want to ask some questions mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's yes. what to ask. <laughs> exactly. Being able to um, have that conversation or first have the realization that that's happening and then being able to have that conversation, I think I think it's key. And I love the um well, so many things that you cover in the book, but one of the one of the important ones that keeps coming up is is around consent and for people to be informed about how their data is being used and when uh, AI is being applied to it. And in that case, you know, there needs to be some transparency, um, some accountability. So we'll jump into into all those. But I really 
love the, the focus that you're bringing on, on AI governance. And I think it's really um, the something that's extremely needed in, in, in our industry um, across the world. And it's something that we are, it feels like just getting started. Um, that a lot of the, the conversation at the moment and recently has been about operationalizing machine learning models, um, making that process more reliable, being able to capture more of the value. Uh, and, and that's an important part of the maturity for the, for the industry, but it needs to be governed. It needs to, we need, we need to have the consensus around that. But how do you even get there? So this is my thing. Like I, the part that is just a little bit like for me, having been in this space now five years, I just feel like, like I, I say the same things over and over and I'm just beating my head against this wall, but it's, it kind of comes back to this data culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have a, we have no acknowledgement in our field really that we're all, we acknowledge it in that we're frustrated, but we don't acknowledge it like in the forefront of our brain and say, okay, you know what, this is actually committing a problem here for me and I need to figure out how to solve it. Instead, we just go, oh, I'm so frustrated because that's like a business person who like took classes in Python. This is so frustrating because they don't understand computer science or an analytics person who grew up with data and SQL and SAS and SPSS and all of those tools are equivalently going to the computer science community going, what's your problem? Like, why can't you think like we do? It's about the business value. And you are just like putting all your code into GitHub and you're pulling random bits of stuff down that don't, you know, set into our value that we're trying to propose here. And you have all these just backgrounds coming at it with all kinds of different tools, all kinds of different backgrounds from business to computer science, to people who are data driven, um, to, you know, just you name it, <laughs> philosophy, you know, people who are of all different kinds of majors who are just coming into this field because they're like, ooh, this is an exciting place to be. And we don't really acknowledge that we need to figure out if we can't come together around a standard set of processes and a standard set of tools, we tend to fall back on computer science methods and product development methods like agile, but we don't, as a group, we don't acknowledge why we do it and if that's even working for us, because a lot of times we have like these stakeholder meetings. Why do we have these stakeholders? We have stakeholder meetings for business executives who have helped fund projects that they don't have a clue how it gets done. Mm-hmm. And you're giving them a say in how things get developed. But the people who are actually very important to like developing responsibly AI and doing responsible um, data, you know, work and data engineering efforts and things of this nature. There's this group that goes between the data scientists who develop the, uh, the set of instructions, the algorithm that becomes the code, that becomes the math, math, the math that becomes the code. And there's this group that that goes back and forth between the data engineering people, and they say we need to munge this. Like, okay. You go over here, junior data scientist, and you figure out with the data engineer how we're going to munch this six way to Sunday to get it to fit into what we're trying to do. And then they do this really fast, iterative. (laughs) And then nobody knows what happened. (laughs) And it becomes like a Frankenstein experiment that nobody knows how to recreate, except they've codified it somehow. 
But if any given API breaks down at any point, if any given piece of data falls out of sync, if, if, if something changes, let's say you've got an IoT, uh, Internet of Things type of solution, and something changes from metric to like the English version of the system, which is 12, which I've never understood why we have this, but <laughs> in America, I'm like, why? Why do we do that? We just have to make yeah. things complicated, right? But I mean, if even just something as simple as like, a lever turned, a sensor turned from metric system to a different system. Even that piece of data could just suddenly mess up an entire algorithm. And right now, the way that we do all these fast and loose, undocumented, iterative, get that MVP out, hurry it up and get this patent or whatever, the way we do that is not conducive to us being able to govern properly. We're so concerned about trying to get it out there in the fastest way humanly possible. I call this the move fast and break people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> approach because in the past, though, it's been extremely helpful to innovate. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to build in a new, we need a new agile, so to say. We need a new way to get things done that builds in time for those junior data scientists and others like them to object sometimes and say, look, that proxy that we just threw in for that one piece of data we couldn't find, like, I don't know about you, Felipe, but like responsibility behaviors, like behavioral things are notoriously hard to find a, some kind of data to represent. Like how responsible of a person is Felipe? I don't know. Let's look at his uh, financial record. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, is that, but there's no time to think about that. Someone just says financial data and someone else says, put it in, hurry, because we got to get this done in six to eight weeks. And that's not enough time, you know, to really truly think about, is that really representative in the use case that we are wanting to use for Felipe to judge him? <laughs> is that really an appropriate and equivalent, you know, proxy even? And it's just things like that. I'm using proxy as one example, but we do things like that without even thinking. I think I think it's a good, yeah, it's a good, it's a good example. And definitely happens for happens a lot in healthcare where measuring somebody's health is essentially a data desert. Like there, there is no good data there. And there's there's some information about when people go see a GP or a family doctor, there's some information when they go to hospital, when they go to see a physio, uh, but understanding kind of the underlying uh, people's health that that at the moment, the way where we've gone about it is, is by doing surveys, patient surveys on a regular basis and trying to engage them that way, um, which is not a not a perfect solution either. And then we're trying to aggregate some, some data on the other side um as as much as you know people are comfortable sharing but that's that's about it and uh, and there has been cases uh, obviously um that um one of that one of them was in the book about cases in the US where they're using healthcare spend as a proxy for how much healthcare people needed and that reflected the socioeconomic demographic of of the patient base and therefore yeah. the people who were able to spend the most were getting the most amount of support uh, from a healthcare perspective, which is not the world that we want. So I definitely agree that uh, with you that one, when we automate these decisions to be made at scale, we have the 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 option, and we have to be deliberate about this about 
uh, we have the opportunity to create the world that we want going forward. Um, and, and that comes to the way that we automate, automate the, the decisions, which largely focuses on the, on the algorithms part, which is the, what the data, data scientists are usually most excited about. Yeah. Um, but the algorithm will learn from the quality of the data. So there right. definitely needs to be some uh, understanding of the bias in the data because the data reflects the, the real world, which society has some biases and we've been improving the biases over time, but there's still biases there. And then those get captured in the data. And if that gets sold to the algorithm, then we're still in trouble. So I, I agree that, that that process needs to be um, better governed and have better, better visibility and for us to be more deliberate about how we attack the problems that we're trying to solve. Um, and then once it goes into production, we need to be able to understand how things are changing because AI fails in silence. It's, it's something right. that it will give you an answer when you ask it a question and you no don't matter know what. how good that answer is. Right. The, the, like, the example that I use all the time is in, in healthcare, if you're building something for say predict health for people and the, the model learns by seeing people that are 20 year olds to 40 year olds. And then once it's in production, you ask it to predict the health of a 60 year old, the model will give you an answer. It won't say, this is a terrible answer, but here's the answer. Right. It will just give you the answer. So, so we need, um, and, and I, know, I know there's been a lot of work in the industry to, to be able to monitor um, the, the models in production, have good observability, make sure that the data is not changing uh, from the training data. And if it is, then let's put in some feedback mechanisms to be able to feed it the right um, examples so the algorithm can learn from that. Um, so I think we're, we're making some, some pockets of improvements on the, on the pre-steps, on the post-steps, on the pre, or in terms of before creating the, the algorithm on the data perspective, um, on the post in terms of getting the algorithm into production. But I think you, you have a really nice focus of that I think is, is taking a step back and it's, it's even bigger that at the start of the chain, um, you're essentially saying, should we be doing this? And how should we do it if we decide to do it? And, and then on the other side, it's around, you know, how, how do we allow people to interact with this technology in a way that they're comfortable, that they acknowledge and know what's happening and that they can opt in or out uh, on a voluntary basis? Um, mm -hmm. is, is that, is that a, a good a, a good representation of, of your, your approach? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really missing today, I think everybody has clued in on the bias front, right? Because of all of the diversity, equity, inclusion across the world, everybody's very keen to, to make sure that we're all picking up on bias, which means that people are paying more attention than ever to transparency and explainability. Um, I still don't see a lot of firms picking up accountability um, mm -hmm. because the nature of data science has typically and definitely right now has been no exception until recently, the recent slowdown, at least in the U.S. of the hiring. But basically, I mean, the average tenure of a data scientist, a really good one, is about 12 to 18 months. Um, and so they're moving on to the next place, whether they've documented it or not, what they did in, you know, and all of that good stuff. 
that means you may or may not have a good lineage and understanding of that model. And sometimes people have invested a million dollars into a model and they just retire it because someone left. And it's like, wow, wow. I don't know many firms that can afford to just go around, you know, retiring. But then when we think about retiring that many models, but when you think about the average, like really large firm, a fortune 500 firm, they have anywhere from 35, you could have like 35,000 models out there. And what's typically happening is someone new comes in and they're like, well, just retire that one. We'll steal some of the stuff. And then like whatever's on a repository somewhere. But I think here's the thing. It all really comes down. It all boils down to all of those things that um, what I was going to say on that was that one thing that's missing is that kill switch, the rectification idea. Like if you get it just so terribly wrong, if the data or the model has drifted off to like out to sea, <laughs> if it's just gone off and, and it's been automated because that's what the goal is, you know, intelligent automation. If it's automated and you just don't even know and you, how are you going to stop it? And then on top of that, like my big example for that is the case of the Tesla driving, like the fully autonomous Tesla driving a couple down the highway in Los Angeles. Nobody could stop it. Not the police, not anybody else on the highway. There was only one way that car was going to stop and it wasn't going to be safely, you know, but it's like, do we understand as people producing these data products that we need to build in a way to safely, you know, sideline these systems. And especially when I think about healthcare, I mean, it's easy to think about a car example because it's literally going on the street and there is nothing that you can do to wake up the sleeping couple in a car. You can honk at them or whatnot, but if they don't wake up, what are you going to do about it? You're on the highway with them. Um, So their ability to, you know, for their car to do something horrible you know, oh gosh, but it's even worse if it's in healthcare and it's unseen. What about robotic assisted surgeries, you know, with AI capabilities like computer vision? You know, if there's not proper constraints, who's to say you couldn't blow a hole, you know, bigger than what a person could withstand because it thinks it sees breast cancer material or something that's bigger than it actually is, you know, it's like, those are the kinds of things that I think we need to start thinking about kill switches. <laughs> like, How do we, where's the, where's that threshold that we stop these technologies in their tracks and then safely off-road them, so to say. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds weird to say in a robotic surgery sense, but <laughs> you know, like. Well, that, I, yeah, I know. I know exactly what you mean. And I think that that good, um, good data science teams and, and, and sort of mature practitioners are there. They're looking into that, um, and there's been progress made on that. From, but it's it's been from a technical perspective. So people they they want to be, um, for example, they want to productionize machine learning models through uh, through differential testing, which is when you have a champion and a challenger model to solve a particular problem, and then that the the challenger model. Um, and the, the champion almost go head to head. So there's essentially data that neither of them had seen before and they get tested and um, you can put some, some safeguards um, in there. And then same for when it goes or into production um, around, around having kind of like a, a kill switch. The, uh, so I think my point there is that I think people are 
making some progress. And I think it's, it's from a technical perspective, but the ethical or, or and beyond ethical, maybe responsible um, component is the one that I think we needs more work that we, we haven't figured out a way to, yeah, as you were saying, like to bring all these different people with different capabilities, with different strengths, bring them together to have uh, an, an organized process that ensures that AI is being responsible in, in, the, in the creation and the deployment and the way that it, it, treats, it treats people. I think that's, that's an area that I see it more outstanding, but maybe, maybe my view is biased that I come sort of more from the, um, from the technical side, but, but the, the ethical one is at least, yeah, I don't, I don't see good approaches yet. And I think that goes, goes back to your other point around the, the lack of regulation in the space. When I know that some, some regions of the world are, are making some progress, like Europe introduced the, the four-tier regulation that they have from low-risk AI, medium-risk, high-risk, and then unacceptable yeah. risk, saying like what's off the table, like credit scoring and, and surveillance and things like that. And then the high-risk, they need to, um, they need to um, adhere to a lot, of the, uh, a lot of your tenets of having good um, governed AI that it needs to be explainable, it needs to be accountable, it needs to be transparent, uh, it needs to be consensual. Like that, that is, is things that they're, um, that they're uh, prescribing for high risk um, AI applications like credit scoring and, and things that, that affect um, people's lives. But in other... Yeah. And, and, and I heard that um, Singapore is uh, coming up or just come up with a good framework that has some implementation steps as well, which is great. But then there's other regions of the world where there is no regulation. Uh, and one of them being Australia, where the, at the moment, yeah. We, have, yeah, we have principles on, uh, right. on ethical AI principles. Lots uh, and lots of principles out there. Yeah, lots and lots of principles, yeah. Not then, a whole like, lot. How of does it, the rubber hit the road? Like, how? What does yeah. that look like? So that's exactly. So that's a good lead-in for the AI truth work that we've been doing on the corporate AI ethics best practices. We are. We're still. We're still working on it because people don't have best practices. <laughs> but we have found enough that we can put out there for everybody to start um, using. And we are expecting to get that out within the next two months. Um, we do have a piece on bias that's already available. And we are putting out um, how to how to line up an external advisory board um, if you want to try and use those. Um, it, they're not right for everybody. But for some groups that are starting up and need that extra help to really think through that the ethical implications um i think it you know these can definitely help with risk management and building a product that you you know you got to vet this stuff in the beginning before it gets too long i mean if you read you read the intro right how once the train's moving it's so hard to stop and then at that point you're just making an individual decision am i personally gonna stop or am I personally going to walk away from this? You know, what's my role in this? And sadly, I think um, a lot of students coming out of school don't even realize that they're probably going to get hit straight on with a lot of these kind of ethical issues. And they're going to have to make a decision because you have people that are going to be entrenched on both sides. Like I always keep this diagram behind me because it comes in handy. And you'll see that in the report too, but 
it's got, you know, this is the source of funding. You got some kind of great idea from a from an executive sponsor and they got like a million bucks from the CEO and they're like, I'm going to do an AI social media command center. Mm-hmm. And that's the case from my book, right? Was the social media command center. What I didn't realize is when I landed there that it was for big tobacco and I was like, whoa, what now? <laughs> and then you start realizing just like in that healthcare case, your clients also will contort what you've built. So even if you build it for one purpose, sometimes the people you're building it for, and these can be internal clients, external clients, or what have you, they're going to try to use it for something different because the data is all there. And they're like, well, if all this data is here, I could probably use it for this too. And, And they have no idea that if they do that, it will be similar to the case where they were trying to make their actuarial situation, their financial situation come true off the backs of saying that, you know, the need of patients was the same as their ability to pay. And it's just not true. What they were trying to do was there was some hot uh, hospital administrators who were getting opportunistic about a financial situation, a scenario modeler. And they were trying to make the best scenario happen. So they were trying to offer VIP product. And it's like, okay, well, then don't try to say you were doing a needs-based program when you're really just trying to, I mean, and I feel for hospitals because they're, a lot of them are nonprofit and they don't have a ton of money coming in. So, I mean, I kind of feel for that. Nobody's evil in this space. Like, I just want to make that very clear. I don't think I'm never, ever going to judge anybody based on their decisions unless they're like truly, like really, truly evil. But like <laughs> for the most part, I think most of us are just trying to figure out how to do this stuff right. And we just, you, we just need help. <laughs> but I think the very first step we have to take, we have to understand our process, the people involved and their backgrounds and how they come at things. And we have to get some tools and technology that are, Across the board, no matter which place you come from in your life, whether you're philosophy who learned Python or whether you're computer science all the way or whether you came up through the data space and you were SQL and SAS and SVSS or whatever you were, we need to come up with those repositories, the lineage. We need to come up with processes and tools that we can all agree on and all keep in one place so we can at least start the process of governance. I think right now we don't even have. (laughs) when I, when we talked to, when we asked different people and we asked different data science teams across these fortune 500, we said, so did you know, we talked to this other group in legal and we're talking to you and they say you do things like this, but you're telling us that you don't do things like that at all. And they're like, well, who did you talk to? Oh, I talked to this group. Oh, well, that's the product group. We're in a different group. And I'm like, Okay, so you're saying because you're in a different group, you do it like this. Yeah, yeah, we're an internal group. We don't we don't create products, so to say. And I'm like, well, you do. They're just being used internally. Oh, well, well, we keep our stuff separate than their stuff. And I'm like, well, that's fine. But you don't have like this overarching agreement about how you're doing these things or even a check and balance against what you're doing. And they're like, well, we don't need that. We have we have this data scientist that does everything for us. And it's like. Oh, my God. <laughs> but these exist all across the company. Every single pod. Yeah. 
There's yeah. an AI pod. I call them a pod. They don't call themselves a pod. They don't even acknowledge that they are this. Yeah. But it's like you're pulling random people from all over in different places and you're sticking them all in one place. And then they're functioning like a team, even though they may not acknowledge. And mm-hmm. I call that team a pod because that's basically how they operate. And they're very iterative, like back and forth, back and forth between data engineering and then uh, CS, who's going to develop an app off of something, whether it's an API or some kind of actual application. But you're just like, this process is just killing people and it's frustrating people. I agree. And I agree. And there definitely needs to be... Um, yeah, the the process, the systems, and the um, the structures around what is what is required. Um, so one of one of the points in in your book that really um, struck me is um, the around the accountability. And mm-hmm. one of the things that that I've done in maybe my last three roles um, is to assign. Um, accountability at the at the role title level so mm-hmm. instead of saying who who is accountable for this oh that person left oh now we don't know it's it's the the person's responsibility of who's in that role at that time and that is clear when they when they come in uh yeah. if they're getting promoted if uh they're getting they need to get that handover, and then it's it's theirs, and that and we've been doing that at a at a platform level, at a data asset level, and a model and at, and at a model level, um, and then that is uh, documented and open uh, across the organization. So then people know who to come to with questions. Um, and on okay. the on the data asset level, we also have um, a a business owner as well. So then the kind of a, at the that asset level, the team is a technical data owner, a business data owner, and a platform uh, owner. Um, and then that goes on to, to the models. But then there is that, that accountability. And then when it comes up the, the technical tree, um, one, of the, one of the things that I see as, um, as my responsibility and, and my direct report in terms of heads off, that they, um, we have to have systems that can give us a lineage, that can give us the documentation mm-hmm. and that and that the processes bring in uh, measures of bias and that can show us explainability of the decisions um, within the model down to an individual role to say what were the, the attributes that to make this one particular decision yeah. out of all the attributes that we're feeding in and why are we feeding in those documenting those those processes I think um, I think is 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 key and, and something we need to do more of but and, and extended as as kind of like the the theme of the conversation like extended to to ethics and responsible ai more beyond the, the technical side so i think that's that's kind of one side the other one that i really like uh from what you just said was having that external review committee and mm-hmm. i think it's one of the things that ai as an industry it's one of the ideas that we should bring in definitely, and that we can essentially pinch from other industries. Um, yeah. And I um, I used to work in, uh, early in my career, they work in, in the mining sector. And in mining, they have external review committees for some of the most technical work that they have. And sometimes it comes to uh, the, the design of the mine. So whether it's a open pit mine, essentially a hole or underground being, being tunnels, 
they have to design the mines in, in a way, and the way that's happening now is that they design it in a way that they use minimum explosives and that they, they're able, especially in, in, uh, in tunnels, in underground mining, they're able to make explosions once and then have decades of a life of a mine where the rock is just breaking due to gravity and they're extracting material from underneath. Um, and those type of designs, then they need to be, be vetted before they get done. They get vetted through an external committee and they have kind of like a panel of, of worldwide experts that they're not they're not people that um, anyone outside of the industry would know or have ever heard of, but it's right. people that have spent kind of their career designing minds around the world and then later in life they they um, go and sit on these technical review committees and essentially because safety is so important in mining mm -hmm. that if um, you know lives are at stake and equipment is at stake and uh, from a production perspective so much money is at stake that they've implemented the, this technical review panel and I argue that in AI it's exactly the same. <laughs> Yeah. Lives are at stake. Like there's so much, you know, it's, and, and so I, I, I love that, that concept that, um, yeah, that, that you so, so well described that um, having that external review panel and, and for that to help guide both the design, the implementation and ongoing governance. Um, I know that in, in several industries, but in the case of mining, like things don't get done until they're approved by that, by that external uh, review committee and and mm. otherwise it's a it's a no go like nobody's willing to, to to do it exactly and that is kind of the crux of the external the external boards as well is like some of these external boards have been dissolved like we all saw the google situation where they dissolved that one before it yeah. even got a chance to launch and it's like okay what do we we did look at that and we have asked a ton of questions um in our research and that one is actually going to be out in January. Um, that report on the extern, how to set it up for, um, you know, so the board can actually be effective, um, how to give them a, a charter and a mandate that, uh, you know, you won't proceed without, you know, listening to what they actually have to say. Because we've also seen a lot of these external boards, they're just there in an advisory capacity. They're not getting paid or anything. And yet, you know, they offer all of this brilliant guidance, which may or may not be accepted. And then basically a lot of companies have used it as virtue signals, you know, like, oh, well, we have these people on our advisory, so we couldn't possibly go wrong. Well, then they release it into the wild. Like there was a, I was quoted in Wired um, with Axos, this group that was going to do tasered, tasers in schools. for yes, the school. I heard that. So I was like, See, this is the case where you should have listened to the to the board that you had because they told them that's a bad idea. Instead, the guy went ahead, the CEO went ahead with an announcement. Well, then because he announced it in advance, of course, the market was like, no, you know, like, no. And he met with a huge backlash that wouldn't have had to happen if he had just listened to the advisory committee because there wasn't a way to do computer vision in a sound way that wouldn't zap some kids i mean come on yeah <laughs> it's like come on now let's think this through a little better but our current ml ops and our current agile and all of these things that we have those don't account for that you know we don't we're not 
we're not accounting for everything in the current way that we do it. We have to account for these executive stakeholders who don't know much right now. We have to get them educated in the same way that two data officers originally had to go and do data literacy and still have to go do a data literacy. We still need that. It's amazing how we don't need less of that. We actually need more of that. <laughs> and we still don't have the basics. So now we're just moving ahead at light speed into AI when we still don't even have data literacy, which is going to affect a lot of things and a lot of ethical behaviors. So, um, But uh, I got to say, I, I, I love your work. I, I love that you're focusing on such an important topic that the that's going to it's so necessary. And I think that, that, that industry is maturing. It's kind of like on the road to maturing enough to understand how much we really need it. And, yeah. and the, the fact that, that you know, you're, you're out there um, having these conversations, educating people, uh, writing books, like it's, it's exactly what we need um, as an industry. So thank you. Thank you so much for doing that, for prioritizing it, for, for being one of, the, one of the champions of this. Well, thanks for letting me get the message out too. I really appreciate that you're oh. sharing this with your community because I know it'll make a big difference. I, I know I know people want to do the right things. They just don't know what to do. And I'm hoping they'll pick up the book and start learning what they can start doing. Because I the whole book is about what you can actually do about this stuff. Not just like, let's complain and whine and commiserate, but here's what I actually want you to do. You know, whether you're an educator, whether you're a lawmaker, I have a huge legal following right now because they're getting into this space because so many patents and IP and like the more GANs come out, you know, well, I still call GPT-3 a, a GAN on steroids, but you know, basically you're replicating the styles of art and journalism and all the major things are getting kind of sort of ripped off, quite frankly. So, I mean, like, as we get more and more into this space, trade hiding behind trade secrets is not going to be allowed for too much longer. I just, I mean, I hate to say, <laughs> I don't hate to say it, but <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. Definitely not. You have to be able to replicate the experiment and tell people this is what we did, and you have to be able to do it in a court of law. <laughs> so start keeping track and <laughs> fix your processes now before it turns too late and you can't use those products anymore. Yeah, because it's the time is coming. And where where can people find out more about, about you, about your work, uh, find out the book, everything? Yeah. Okay, well, the book right now, the best bet for Australia is to go to amazon.com and log in that way. Um, I would have sent you to Simon & Schuster, which is the book's um, distributor, but I think the best way to do it is just to go through um, good old Amazon. Uh, you can log in through a U.S. Uh, I think you'll get a better price if you log in through the U.S., um, but I don't know. If you do Amazon.com, and I think it's a slash with U.S., I'm not really sure from Australia how that exactly works. But um, the other part of this is um, just go on LinkedIn. I'm always updating on LinkedIn what's happening and all of that good stuff. That's where I do the majority of my updates. Um, the other thing, I am on Twitter, too. The best uh, way to, to find out what we're up to is to go to AI Truth. And if anybody wants to volunteer, we have a golden data sources um, research project that is about to start up. 
And so if you sign up um, on the website for the newsletter, you will see an opportunity soon to sign up for that. So sign up for the newsletter, go to www.aitruth.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. You're helping, you're, you're, you're going to come together with great community members and do a great thing. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much, Courtney. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the book is What You Don't Know. Check it out on Amazon. We'll put links to everything that Courtney has just said. Links will be in the show notes. And Courtney, thank you so much for all the work that you do. And thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.